So David, when I was in grad school, my professor once asked me, what is the difference between persuasion and propaganda? How would you answer that question? Okay, so we began at the beginning and you know, the term propaganda began as a very positive term. The Catholic Church wanted to propagate its faith, actually created a ministry department of propaganda. And the goal was we want to get out the positive message of you should be a Catholic. This was a time where the Catholic Church was under great uh, strain and stress with uh, a rival Christian schismatic faiths and also the battle of the Mediterranean with the rise of Islam. So it was seen as a way to, we have specific messages and we wanna make sure we convince as many people as possible of that message. And, and this is where we get into the all important discussion of an audience, right? Because the first question to ask about any bit of persuasion, influence and propaganda, and I promise we will talk about that, is who's the target audience? You and I started our careers together at LSU, which was a very political communication heavy program because Louisiana, boy, that was a very political state, right? P people were being bombarded with political messages all the time. And I remember when I would teach my class on political advertising, I would start the very first class and I would show the students some political ads, Congress, governor, ones they probably didn't know who these people were from other states, right? And I would ask the students, do you think that these are good ads? Do you think that these are effective ads? Do you think that they're persuasive? And almost everybody started to answer the question. It was a trick question. I would say, whoa, whoa, stop. You, there's a really important question you have to ask me first before you can answer whether this is a good ad. And that is, who is the target audience? If the target audience are middle-aged African-American women living in a rural area between ages 40 to 50, how many of you feel confident that you can answer for them, right? And so when we're talking about, say, the Ukraine war, we have to understand that different propaganda messages are aimed at different audiences. Now, I think all people in the public eye and all states, all actors, all companies are trying to engage and influence all the time. Uh, Siemens and Exxon and the United States government and the governor of Bahrain always care about their image, their brand. And you've been a leader in sort of establishing the term brand to apply to nation states and not just to companies and, and individuals. But I like to use the word propaganda for a more acute situation where people are trying to specifically sell, persuade a certain message at a certain time, not just the always on chronic influencing, but the, I have a goal. I want to change the mind of this audience. I wanna get these people to vote for me. I want these people to stop sending money to my enemies. I want these people to, to take action and go to war for me. So I like to use propaganda as a more specific case and influences the more general case. I'm not sure what kind of grade you would receive in my grad class uh, from my former professor. He, he had a different uh, notion and, and I wanna throw it back at you. He actually tried to argue, and I don't have a worldview on this specifically, uh, that the difference between persuasion and propaganda has to do with the level of truth or misinformation within the message itself. What do you think about that perspective? Um, I disagree because I think that you can have positive 
uplifting, virtuous, completely truthful propaganda. In World War II, um, the, the United States had a lot of propaganda to convince other nations that this was a struggle against an evil enemy that was bent on world domination. And I think that they were right. Uh, now, were they exactly accurate in everything that they claimed? I mean, we can go back to the history of World War I propaganda as sort of being too often misrepresenting. You, you can have untruth in the name of a, a, a good cause. In fact, um, th there's a history there in religion of the, the sort of pious lies, like, like you tell a lie in order to get a good result. So I, I, I guess I would rather have the definition that propaganda is an acute persuasion campaign where you're trying to persuade people of something very specific, and there can be truth, there can be error, there can be virtue, and there can be evil. Okay, well, let's let's talk about the real world. I mean, right now, everybody's talking about Russian propaganda yeah. surrounding Ukraine. Putin is speaking domestically to his own people, trying to gain support. He needs it. And he's speaking to his allies and adversaries around the world. On the other hand, the Western side also has a message, which they don't view as propaganda, perhaps, but rather the truth. So again, the notion of good and evil, who's right and who's wrong, what seems like Russian propaganda to people in the West, may seem like the truth and vice versa. Where do you draw the line? Well, again, I, I go to the audiences. Let's just talk about something that you just said. Uh, I believe that a lot of what we hear from the president of Russia is not really aimed at you and me. It's not really directed at the public in Texas. It's aimed at a specific Russian audience. I don't even think it's aimed at like the people of Russia. Uh, Putin is in power because he has a certain base that sees him as a defender of Russia. And of course, this is something he's portrayed himself as his whole career, right? I'm the savior of Russia. I'm the defender of Russia. Russia is surrounded by enemies. Only a strong person like me can defend Russia. There's a certain base there of Russian I think it's self-perceived ultra patriots. I, I don't even want to say hard right or hard left, but these are people who are very, very intensive pro-Russia Russians and think only a, a, a tough, strong man can defend Russia. That has a long history in Russia, going back to, I don't know, to Rurik the Viking, you know, I mean, the idea of like a strong man. And the czars propagated this, Stalin propagated this, Brezhnev propagated this. So that's important. A lot, a lot of times we say that good propaganda tells people what they already want to hear, right? So I think that there's a, a segment of the Russian public, certainly the Russian intelligence services and the military are wildly overrepresented in this segment of the public of like super patriot, super defend the border. So I think maybe 90% of what we hear from Putin is him trying to hold on to that base of I'm the strong man to defend Russia. So if it falls flat, as I think it does sometimes in like, you know, an ordinary person just listening in Texas, I don't think Putin is worried about that too much. Yeah. Uh, and he also knows that there are other constituencies like, you know, the Saudis or the, the Chinese or India that he can approach with other messages and make deals with. So I think that's the most important thing to do is to ask who's the audience that a propaganda campaign is aimed towards.
I want I want to talk about who else engages in the propaganda, which is a really interesting phenomenon. You know, uh, when you look at Russia and you look at their RT, Russia Today, their their state-owned media channels, you're like, well, of course they repeat Putin's worldview or his framing of uh, the Ukraine situation. That's what state government-owned media channels do. However, we see a very similar phenomenon in the West, right? You don't hear a lot of descending voices. So in, in journalism studies, in media research, we learned about indexing theory that predicts that uh, when the media uh, sees consensus within the elites, they will mirror the worldview of the elites. And we see this about the war in Ukraine, the war in Russia right now, where you don't hear a lot of descending voices um, in the Western media, nor in Europe or in the United States. Yeah, I, I think here we have to bring in evolutionary theory too. Uh, years ago, I wrote a book on the history of the visualization of warfare, and I went back to like the very first images that we have visual images from the the caves uh, in southern France, you know, thirty to forty thousand years ago. And I made a case that from the very beginning, when we created visual images, and maybe back then they didn't call it news, but today we call it news, we tend to portray the world as we want it to be rather than the world than it is. Now, I am a journalism professor. I, I, I self-identify as a journalism professor. I really do tell my students, if you hate what you find to be the truth, print it, publish it, broadcast it, that's your job. That's not. That's obviously not the, the common paradigm now where it is in my opinion, the case that a lot of what passes as news is basically the opinion of the journalist and them finding something to plug into that opinion. And it's more obvious in the case of dictatorships where it just like everything that's coming out is that, and there's no, there's no, really no minority opinion or dissent, but it's a phenomenon across all news all the time in the West as well, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> It, your your key point being, I mean, I don't think it's always that when there's a consensus. I think journalists journalists choose which part of a political issue to be part of. So there might be a division, but still the journalists take one side on a division, and then everything that comes out of that news network supports that narrative. Oftentimes, well, you're talking about the caves in France back in the day. You know what they didn't have back then? They didn't have TikTok, nor did they have Instagram or Twitter. How does social media change the game? How does it affect modern day propaganda? Right. So when when I was starting my career now 30 years ago, I would in my dissertation, I studied how elite newspapers and magazines set an agenda for the view actually of China. I studied how over 40 years, how American journalists pictured China. And I studied the New York Times, Washington Post, Newsweek, and Time Magazine. I'm wondering how many of our students know all four of those names today. I think maybe they know one, maybe two of those names. There's been a sea change. Obviously, the legacy industrial media and then the government me media still exists, right? And they still have power and influence, and they still engage in propaganda. But we have this new world of retail media, of so social media, of individuals, and now there's where you can see attempts for propaganda influence as well. If you go on Reddit, for example, uh, and you will see entire Reddit is a very good lit, uh, indicator species because any issue that comes up, 
there'll be a hundred new Reddit sites just focused on that. And then you can go to the right-wing Reddit and left-wing Reddit, and you will see two alternate reality worlds. It's almost like, like, like um, a, a, mult a multiverse where there's, there's planet A and planet B. You just take this case of the attack on Paul Pelosi. If you read Democratic Reddit versus Republican Reddit, it's almost like the two, two completely events, different events happen. Now, you can see that with the Ukraine war, uh, there are, the dominant narrative is pro-Ukraine, and it's clear that anybody who tries to post anything pro-Russia on most mainstream Reddits is, is attacked pretty much right away. Uh, so you can say that a consensus seems to have built within the world of, of, of social media, but parts of social media. Before we started, you were talking about there are massive demonstrations going on in Europe. Now, I, I don't know because I haven't interviewed those people, right? So I don't know whether those, th those demonstrations are frustration over bad e economy, over energy issues, over inflation. Uh, how much are willing people willing to pay for a, a successful Ukraine war against Russia? This has always come up in the past. We forget this. We forget that, for example, in the early days of World War II, and we think of World War II as like a consensus war, right? But if you look at public opinion and just take Britain in the early days, 1939 through the fall of France, British public opinion was divided. Uh, there were people, British fascists, who were saying, why die for Danzig? Why, why should British soldiers die for Poland? And they, that, that resonated with the British public. The consensus of the war did not build until years later. And so the question about how much we're paying for a war, uh, famous uh, comment by George Marshall, the, the commander of uh, the the overall military chief during World War II, he said something like, democracies cannot support seven years wars. The longer a democracy fights a war, the, the more unhappiness there is and pain for that war. And so I think there's a lot of people who say like, are we willing to sacrifice our economy for Kiev, right? That's not being anti-Ukraine, that's just saying I as a French person am not willing to sacrifice my job and my children's college tuition for, for Kiev. So it may not be just propaganda, it may be real economic effects. And it may be a part of uh, Vladimir Putin's overall strategy for Europe. I mean, as we go into the winter with uh, his finger on the supply of gas and, and uh, oil, right, to the continent, he wants to put Europe into recession in order to undermine the governments uh, and NATO. Yes, and you're making a really important point is that there, it's not like propaganda is something so discreet as to be removed from politics, economics, and military affairs. I mean, the more, more battles you win, the more successful your propaganda is. You know, Germany, I would consider Germany to have produced some amazingly powerful propaganda during World War II. It became less effective as they lost the war year after year. Um, and Western propaganda became more effective as they were winning the war. So uh, Putin is in a situation now where he's def definitely, if I, if I were him and I was made the decision to continue this war, I would see the undermining of European support is absolutely vital. And that's an, that economic warfare would be crucial to, uh, to at least stopping the flow of aid 
to Ukraine. Okay, so we see that, as, as you mentioned, as wars go, go on, the public loses interest, the media loses interest. I mean, when's the last time you heard a story about, you know, the 10 years of Afghanistan, we had heavy media coverage in the beginning, and then it faded away and kind of became a memory. Uh, where do you see the battle for public opinion in the coming year around the Russia-Ukraine war? Well, I guess I would argue that both Ukraine, uh, Putin and Biden have made the same gamble that the war will be a, a short-er war. I mean, no, now you know, every war begins with like, we'll be home by Christmas, right? Like, I, it's, it seems to be a, a, a national delusion that everybody thinks a war, especially a, a large-scale war, will be over quickly. Uh, I think Biden sort of hoped that he would bring the Putin to the, to the negotiating table with this massive outpouring of aid. And now the Democratic Party and Biden are going like, yeah, oh, this is, we're in trouble. Because, in, I mean, he said early on, blame inflation on Putin, right? But like, is the American public going to be okay with that for four years if we have a bad economy? Four years from now, somebody might, the net, or the net, when we have a 2024 presidential election, somebody might say, okay, you know what? Time out. We've paid a heavy economic price for Kiev for three years. We need a new policy, right? So gam Biden gambled on an early victory. Putin gambled on an early victory. Neither got an early victory. And so I think both are trying to re restructure defining victory and also defining what their propaganda campaigns are. All right. So ultimately, if somebody takes away from this conversation, uh, the focus really is on propaganda is not aimed at everybody. It's aimed at very, very specific audiences. Oftentimes, there are domestic audiences, even when you're talking about international affairs. Uh, I want to kind of uh, sum it all up with your thoughts about how technology and the evolution of technology uh, is going to affect the future of propaganda. Well, we are entering a, an era of the deep fake. We're entering an era where you'll have AI plus very high resolution video plus, of course, extremely fast processing where we're not going to know what truth is. I mean, we're, we're, I, I think we're here now, but like we're, we're certainly just a year away from if I want to create a video of Guy Golan shaking hands with Putin on top of a tank flying over the Eiffel Tower, no one will be able to tell that that's faked footage. That 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 I mean, even the use of the word footage. Uh, so what do we do then when the basic unit of visual truth is no longer credible, or you can't actually tell? Now, obviously, governments for a long time. Uh, the Soviet government was very famous for this. The Nazi government was very famous for this, for creating propaganda, you know, editing pictures to make them look, somebody look bad or somebody look, look good. But the AI, uh, virtual reality, creating reality is going to change what propaganda is and can be, especially when you have all these audiences who are, you know, we see these public opinion polls where people are angry. Like there's a certain segment of the American right wing that that would be very happy to have a dictator as long as they put all left wing people in jail. And there's a very segment of the American left wing that would be happy to vote for a dictator as long as they put all Republicans in jail. So there's a lot of angry people who will believe anything 
as long as it, it's feedback that fits, right? Human beings from the cave paintings through today like to be told you're right and that we seek out evidence on social media. We tend to gravitate towards websites or social media places that tell us we're right. And so if you can create persuasive visuals that tell you you're right, we're going to have a permanent fracturing of opinion and never be able to have a consensus or truth. I'm very worried about that future. Right. And as you said, the future is already here with bots, with AI, with virtual influencers, and with the uh, lack of ability to distinguish between uh, truth and inaccuracies online. So uh, the need for media literacy classes in colleges, the, the need to solidify the uh, trust of the public in journalism. So many things to think about. Uh, David Perlmutter, Dean and a professor of the College of Media and Communication at Texas Tech University. Thank you so much for joining us today and let's hope for better news. Thank you. Appreciate the time to talk and applaud the work that you're doing to let people understand how these processes work because I think that's the the real goal is for people to to be able to make discerning educated choices by themselves without being told what to do by either big media or big government. All right. Perfect. Thank you, David. Thank you.